Your thoughts will influence your actions. How you think will absolutely dictate what you do. We spend so much time trying to address our actions, but we don't spend enough time addressing the thoughts that fuel those actions. If you think that's modern psychobabble, then you really haven't properly understood the structure of the book of Ephesians and probably all of Paul's writings. Let me show you why on this episode of By the Verse. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of By the Verse. This is a podcast that is all about God's Word as we explore books of the Bible chapter by chapter. So in our last episode, we were in Ephesians chapter 3. We saw that Paul's unfolding of the mystery of Christ hit a grand crescendo. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul began peeling back the layers of this mystery. God's plan was to put everything under Christ as the head of the church. That was the will of God. The church is the body of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles as equals. And Paul himself had received grace from God to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot here in chapter 4. We're going to take it in chunks, but before we read it, I just want to show you that there's three main sections of this chapter. In verses 1 through 6, Paul introduces the virtues or attitudes of the believer. In verses 7 through 16, he addresses the organization of the body of Christ. In verses 17 through 32, he gives practical application to the virtues that he's outlined in the first six verses. So let's read it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's stop here. Up to this point, Paul hasn't asked his reader to do much of anything. Now, way back in chapter 2, verse 11, he did ask the Gentiles to remember their former way of life. And in chapter 3, right at verse 13, he asked his, his readers not to lose heart because of his imprisonment. But that's not much. I mean, he really hasn't asked them to change anything or do any grand or hard thing. He hasn't commanded them with the authority that he has as an apostle to do anything. It's almost as if he recognizes that before he can ask them to do anything, he has to train them on how they should think. He's not willing to put this new moral ethic on them, this new way of living, until he has first made sure that they understand who they are and whose they are. Now, I love biographies. 
Uh, I love to get the inside scoop on somebody's life, see the backstory of all of their struggles and everything that it took for them to get where they were in life and to achieve whatever they achieved. When you know the backstory, it gives you an emotional connection uh, to that person. See, we identify with them more and the person can become even more inspiring to us. Well, Paul has spent three chapters giving us the backstory of what God has done from before time even existed. He gave us the inside scoop on what God has been doing and how it has benefited us. Now, he's not telling us this information just so we can know it. He's telling us this because when you know everything that it took to get to this point, when you know the backstory of everything that had to happen to get you where you are right now, the response should be a greater love. I was talking to a friend of mine about this years ago, and he said it's like Paul was creating in us a greater capacity for deeper love. See, Paul knows that what he needs to do and what he's about to do in chapters three, sorry, chapters four, five, and to some extent chapter six, is he's going to put on us a new way of living, a new way of doing things. But the problem is he cannot put that new code of conduct on us until he has first fanned the flames of love within us. He doesn't want to tell us what we should do until he has properly motivated us, until he has shown us what the motivation is to do these things. The Christian ethic is not one that is based on fear. We don't do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing just because we're afraid of the punishment that might accompany those actions. And don't get me wrong, punishment is not irrelevant, okay? It's a real thing and we should factor it in, but we don't live this life in Christ because of fear. We live it because of love. The Christian ethic is not one that is built on the idea that if I'm good enough, then I can earn my spot in the heavenly places. He's already showed us that Christ earned it for us. The only thing that properly motivates this life is love. So he has fanned these flames of love. He has showed us what God has done for us and the role that Christ played in it. He's peeled back the mystery so that we can understand all that God has done for us to get us to this point, and our response, the adequate response should be love. Everything you do should flow from that. It's, it's not a need to be his child. You're already his child. It's not fear because we don't have to be afraid when we come to him. It's not earning anything because we just simply receive, okay? We receive by faith what Christ has already earned for us us. I heard a commentator put it this way. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul shows us the riches that we have in Christ, but in chapters 4 through 6, he shows us how to spend it. And so Paul now shifts from helping us understand and develop a deeper love for Christ, and now he's going to tell us what we should do with that love. He moves from riches to responsibility. So Paul starts out by mentioning that he is a prisoner for Christ on our behalf. Now, he could have just commanded us as an apostle because he had that authority, 
but he didn't appeal to his authority. Instead, he appealed to his authenticity. He didn't appeal to his position. He appealed to passion. He has already suffered for this thing, and so he is the right person to ask us now to change some things and to do some hard, difficult things because he has truly suffered for what he believes. And the first thing that he asks us to do is to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. Now, your walk is basically your lifestyle. It's your habits. It encompasses everything that you do. It, that is what your biblical walk is. And Paul wants our walk or our lifestyle to be worthy. Now, in the ancient world, this word worthy actually has a word picture of a scale. It's, it's of balance and equivalence. If you put a weight on one side of the scale, then the only worthy thing to do on the other side, the the only thing that will balance it out on the other side is to put a weight of equal uh, uh, equivalence. So imagine a rich person and a working class person. They both sell everything that they have. They give it to the poor. Now, we would say that's not equal giving because clearly the rich man gave more in terms of dollars. But we can say that it's equal sacrifice because both of them gave everything that they had. Well, God is the rich man in the equation. He held nothing back. He gave us the riches of heaven in Jesus. He went all in on his side of the scale. So the only worthy thing we can do, the only equivalent thing we can do to balance it out, the only adequate response is that we go all in on our side of the scale. And again, it doesn't earn our salvation. We're just merely responding to the measure of what God has done for us. That is is a worthy uh, lifestyle. And Paul calls it, he says it's the calling to which we've been called, okay? We have all been called to this new life in Jesus Christ. If you uh, answered your phone and it was a telemarketer, you'd handle that call a certain way. If you answered your phone and it was a phone call from a famous person that you love all their movies, you listen to all their music, you would handle that phone call differently. Well, God is the one who is the caller, and because He, the great God of all the universe, is the caller, we handle the call differently. We handle it in a way that is worthy of the call, this new life in Christ that we have. Now, Paul is about to tell us things that are not easy, and there will be a lot of days where it's tough, but the thing that properly motivates all of this, remember, it is love. And so Paul gives us four virtues that we need to walk in that characterize this new lifestyle. The first uh, virtue is humility. Now, in the ancient world and probably also in our world, humility is a little bit of a dirty word. It's it's not something uh, that we hold in high esteem if we're really uh, speaking the truth. But in the Greco-Roman world, it was far worse than in our world. Humility was a lowliness of mind, and the, the thinking was that humility is the thoughts that a slave thinks about himself. It's a slave mindset. 
A slave knows that he's not a master. A slave doesn't have grandiose ideas about himself. He knows his place. He knows who he is. And so no respecting person, no free person in the Greco-Roman world would go around and talk about you know being hu- humble and, and having this attitude of humility because that's a slave's mindset. But the New Testament writers pick up on this and they say, actually, no, that's the Christian mindset, that we are slaves uh, to Christ. Humility is when we see ourselves accurately. We're supposed to walk in this attitude of humility. Uh, We can be humble in some areas of our life and, quite honestly, be prideful in other areas. It's kind of like the guy who was voted most humble in his church, and they gave him a nice pin, and he wore that pin every day, and then they thought maybe we should take that award back. See, the reality is we can be humble in certain things and be prideful in other areas, but the reality is that the Christian mindset is that we see ourselves as we really are according to God's Word. We're not greater than we are. We're not less than what we are. That is the humble slave mentality of the Christian. We are slaves to Christ. The second virtue is gentleness or meekness. It carries with it the picture of a wild animal that has been brought under control, much like you have to break in a horse before you can ride it and the horse will receive instruction from its rider. You have to break it first. And so this idea of meekness means that we have been broken, our our tendency to want to go our own way and do our own thing has been tamed. It has been broken. It it has been brought under control. Meekness is not weakness. A tamed lion is still a lion. Meekness is power under control. God wants to harness your strength for the kingdom of God. And sometimes the process that we go through is challenging because it is a breaking of our own will that has to happen so that the strength that God has placed in us can be harnessed for his kingdom and not just for our own purposes. That leads to patience. And this, of course, is everyone's favorite virtue. The word could be translated as long-suffering, and it's basically when we are willing to put up with long-standing issues, problems, and frustrations because we know that ultimately it will produce a better harvest. Now, patience is not merely waiting because sometimes we're forced to wait, but that doesn't mean we're patient just because we have no choice but to wait, like when you have to wait in a line at the store and it's very long. Well, you don't have a choice. You, ha- you have to wait. That doesn't mean you're very, very patient. Patience is being okay with the waiting. A microwave and a crock pot can cook the same meal, but the quality of the product will differ. When patience is being tried, okay? Uh, when, when patience is being tested and you're having to move along slower than what you want, you have to remind yourself that what you're actually doing is you're making the final product better. You could go faster, but what you're doing in taking time and, and making it go slower is that you're making the product better. Do you want a rubbery, dry meal or do you want a moist and flavorful meal, because that is what patience 
produces in us. It, it, it produces a more flavorful life, okay, and not a tough, rubbery, dry life. That leads us to the fourth virtue here, which is forbearance, bearing with one another. And a good way of saying it is we need to learn how to put up with one another. It's really an extension of patience. It's when we see other people in process. We have to let each other be imperfect. Even people that we think should be better than that, we have to let them be imperfect. That doesn't mean we don't try to help each other grow. It just means that we can't expect that because maybe we've talked about it a few times and we've addressed you know, an issue here or there, or maybe because a person is in leadership or they're kind of a spiritual person, that they've got it all figured out. No, none of us have it all figured out. We all need God's mercy and love, okay? If God loved us so much that when we were dead in our sins, that he sent his son to die for us, the least that we can do for each other is to put up with one another while we are still in the process of perfection. Now, these four virtues are really attitudes. Attitudes filter how you see the world. Humility is an attitude about myself. Meekness is an attitude about who's in control. Patience is an attitude about the process. And forbearance is an attitude toward other people's weaknesses. Now, if we get our attitudes right, then we can land on the sweet spot of unity. That is the goal. The goal is unity in verse 3. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, among Christians... Unity is not natural. Unity is not an organic thing that just happens because we're all Christians. Unity must be intentionally forged. And that's why we have to be eager to maintain it because it is so easy to lose. Now, my wife and I have been married quite a while, and we have moved to nine different addresses uh, in our marriage, and we have become expert packers. We have rarely broken anything in any of these moves, and it's because we have learned the secret of bubble wrap. Bubble wrap is your friend, and some things are more fragile than others. They need a little extra cushion, and unity is that thing. It needs a little extra, needs a little extra guarding, a little extra protection, because it's so easy to break. Now, this is my opinion, but I think that division is one of the greatest sins in the church. I know that's a bold statement. Okay, the Bible doesn't say that. That's my personal belief that anything that divides people and that brings strife among the brethren is one of the worst things you can do in the church. Now, there's a whole lot of teaching I can do on this, and I'll refrain from that for right now, but let me just state it very simply to, to you. Division distracts from the gospel. The spiritual reality is that Paul says in verse 5 that we are one body, we have one spirit, we have one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. That's water baptism. We have one God and Father. He's emphasizing our oneness, our togetherness. That's the spiritual reality. But here's the thing. Spiritual truths must have an earthly expression. We express our oneness spiritually. 
in our unity, and we guard it by our actions. Now, at this point, I am going to briefly uh, skip to verse 17, and then we'll come back to verse 7, and you'll, you'll see why in a moment. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now let's stop here. I think that these verses are better connected to the first six verses that we read at first, and the reason is because they continue with the idea that there is a difference in your in the walk of a believer and the walk of an unbeliever simply because of the way that you think. He says, don't, don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. This, this is their thought process. Their thought process is futile. The way that they reason, the way that they justify and think through what they do, it, it's, it's futile. It's frustration. It never delivers on its promises. He says it's darkened in its understanding. Okay, It's another way of saying that we can't see things clearly uh, when you're thinking as a Gentile in the futility of their thinking because you're cut off from the light and the life of God. If you have ever played a stringed instrument, you know that in the beginning it hurts your fingers because your skin is pressing against the metal. But eventually you develop calluses after repeatedly pressing against the strings and it doesn't hurt anymore. That's the former way of life. Through repeated disobedience, we build up greater calluses against God resulting in the pursuit of things that don't make any sense things that clearly hurt us, things that are clearly bad for us and don't deliver on their promises, but because we're so callous, we can't really feel it anymore. It doesn't have quite the sting that it should have on us. Paul said that's not the way that you learn Christ. We as Christians are renewed in our minds in verse 23. It's a continual work that must happen in us so that the Spirit must renew our thinking to the way it should have originally been. When our minds are renewed, this is the practical way that it is expressed in our actions toward each other, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with one another in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm not going to explain all these verses because I think most of them make perfect sense, but let me point out just a couple of things. Notice here uh, the reason why we should do all of these things. Paul tells us on many of these things why we should do them. He says, speak the truth to one another because we're of the same body. He's basically saying, don't lie to yourself. Okay, speak speak the, the truth to yourself. We don't need to go around lying to ourselves or, or not being completely honest with one another because it's like you're, you're, you're not telling the truth to your own self. We're, we're members of one body. We don't steal, but rather we work hard with our own hands, not simply because working hard is a good thing, and it is a good thing, but we do it so that we might have something to share. We don't let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, not just because, you know, we, we want to say good things, you know, saying good things is good, saying bad things is bad, that is obvious, it makes sense. But he, what he's saying is we don't want to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths because it's corrupting to others, right? It has an effect on other people, right? We forgive not because it's good for relationships and and it is, if you want to be in a relationship with, with somebody, you, you need to learn how to forgive. But we don't forgive just because it's a good thing. We forgive because we've been forgiven. There is always a reason for doing the right thing. There, there's always a thought pattern that motivates the right action. And it usually, it usually places the focus on what is good for others, okay? So now let me hop all the way back to uh, verse 7 in this chapter. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his, to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, this may sound uh, confusing at first, but what Paul is really quoting here in, in a section is he's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18, which refers to a triumphant king re returning victoriously from battle. It was common that there would be a great procession through the city uh, where the, the uh, conquering king would come in. He would lead this procession of these people that he has captured, usually high-ranking uh, dignitaries who are being dragged along, basically, in utter humiliation. So in this psalm, this king receives uh, gifts. This is the spoils of war that he is receiving. But Paul turns it around and says, no, our king has actually given us gifts. In other words, because of Christ's victory, we receive the spoils of war. We receive gifts. Paul's reference to descending should not be taken as a reference to hell, but a reference either to Christ coming to earth in human form, which is quite a dissension uh, from heaven, okay? 
Um, or it, it could properly be understood as Christ going down into the tomb. And there are other places that refer to the tomb as the heart of the earth or the depths of the earth. See Psalm 69 verse 16 or Romans 10 verse 7. So Paul is really saying that Christ came down He was victorious. He ascended on high as a triumphant king. And because he reigns on high and is victorious, he has given gifts to men. Grace was given to each one. So all of us who are believers have spiritual gifts. But Paul only mentions five spiritual gifts here in verse 11. But if you collect all of the passages of Scripture uh, that talk about spiritual gifts, there are about uh, 20 unique spiritual gifts. That That's my reading of it. Some scholars will place it uh, a little fewer than that, and some scholars will go as high as 28 that are mentioned in Scripture. I land right at 20. I think it's a safe number. So we should acknowledge here that Paul is not trying to give a deep discussion on spiritual gifts, and neither will I. This passage is included here because he's just been talking about unity, so now he's going to include how the church is organized. Okay, it's not in order of of importance. It's merely to help us understand how we fit together, which perfectly fits into his uh, urging us toward unity. So verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So notice here that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers not only have spiritual gifts, but they themselves are a gift because Paul says Christ gave them to the church. So they are a gift to us and what we receive when we have them in good quantity and good quality is a source of equipping. This is their function collectively which should indicate to us that if we have some but not all, then we are missing a necessary source of equipping. Some parts of the human body exist to help other parts function the way they should. These gifts equip, train, and help the other parts of the body of Christ to fulfill their purpose. They are not more important. But when they are functioning well, they help us to grow up into maturity, They help us to grow into being mature believers, and that provides protection against the enemy's schemes. Maturity provides protection against the enemy's schemes. That's very, very important, and we'll probably come back to that again in chapter 6. This is often called uh, the fivefold ministry. Now, some people dispute that pastors and teachers are actually separate because in the Greek, they're not separate. It's pastor-teacher in the Greek. They're connected. Uh, 
Now, the way I understand it is that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. A teacher could be a scholar, an author, or a professor, uh, or a Sunday school teacher, quite honestly. They teach, but they do not necessarily pastor people. Pastors must lead people, and that includes teaching, but that's only one part of uh, the role. So whether you take it as five or four, the point here that Paul is making is that we should understand how the church is organized, and it is organized by spiritual gifts, different parts coming together to serve a function, okay? There is no room for arrogance here. No part is uh, independent. No part is more important than any other part. Uh, There is no room for self-hatred because we think our part is lower or less useful, okay? We contribute to division inside the church when we fail to recognize our proper place in the church. Well, here's your takeaway for today. With the help of the Holy Spirit, And all of your interactions, especially inside the church with other believers, put on your Ephesians 4 glasses. Those attitudes we discussed in the beginning, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, they are lenses through which we can properly see ourselves, see our situation, and see others. If we can rightly see it, then we can rightly behave. Well, that's all we have for this episode. We'll walk through Ephesians chapter 5 on the next episode of By the Verse.